0: Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the ride. This is Stride by Stride with Desiree, and I'm talking today with my friend Desiree Johnson from Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Hey, Des, I got to tell you, I just love um, the cell phone pocket on the Smooth Stride riding jeans. And that's actually something I know you added to the uh, jeans because the original jeans didn't have that. But, you know, I'm working all the time. I just managed to fit my rides in between making conference calls and and checking emails and all that. So I just love having my phone with me when I'm riding. And it's such a... Mm -hmm. um, well-designed spot for the cell phone pocket because mounting dismounting riding no matter what you do that cell phone you never know it's there until you go to get it out so um i just wanted you to know how much i love that
1: Well, thank you. You know, back when I was up in Washington State teaching um, and riding alone, um, and my husband traveled a lot, you know, I had young horses and I'm out there jumping, had my helmet on, but I needed my phone on me that was it was I, I you know I until I had those I'd, I'd give a lesson I'd leave my phone and one of my chairs on my viewing station and I'd walk the lesson up into the road and three hours later where's my phone so it was it, by the time I knew Eric and I knew that we were going to be uh, pursuing the gene company thing I knew exactly where the cell phone pocket was and I have a kind of a fun story about that if you want to hear about sure that how it kind of got started. So, Remember I told you I was at Ranch and Home looking for jeans, so we went back to Ranch and Home to talk to the owner to talk to, about possibly uh, carrying the jeans in his store and he had also been to WESA and so we were picking his brain and so we had a meeting and he stood up, you know, after I told him that I was going to put a cell phone pocket, he stood up and he turned around and he said, well, I have a work pant that has a cell phone pocket in it. And he showed it. It was an old-fashioned, kind of like a painter's pant. Uh-huh. It was off the back of the right side. And he said, I don't know what I would do without these work pants. He said, I'll tell you a funny story. Said, I take my wife out to dinner and I don't wear my work pants. I wear nicer jeans that don't have a cell phone pocket. And he looked at me and he said, I am lost. He said, because I don't know what to do with my cell phone. <laughs> he said, I can't needs a get purse. Out my work pants. <laughs> Well so I, t- I looked at it and so what I decided to do or Eric and I decided to do is just take that welt pocket that's on the back side of the man's uh, work pants and
0: just flip it. Oh sometimes. right. Because it flip, is it it, it it is welted like that and that's one of the things that makes it great is you can slip your phone in and out so easily, but once it's in there it's almost as if it disappears.
1: Right, and Eric designed the shell he designed little shelves on either side and this is where he, his brain comes in because he's a he's got a designer type brain and it has little shelves on either side that because uh, he was worried that the phone might come out and he also wanted to uh, make it big enough to fit a, a bigger phone once it's in the pocket but the phone doesn't even want to come out and the whole thing it's just it, it's just it's you're right it's absolutely perfect placement perfect size. You can even jog in them and the phone doesn't flap and you don't even know you have it on you, you know?
0: Yes. And for, and really, um, at the end of the day for safety reasons, especially when you're riding trails and stuff, it's, it's really great that we have the technology these days. And so you should have your phone with you. And the phone should be on your body, not on the horse, because you can get Absolutely. separated from the horse.
1: Yeah. Well, and that Hello, re- reminds me of another situation. I was at a clinic, and I had my a couple students that were riding, and so I was on the ground. I was not mounted. And it was a blustery, windy day up in Washington, and um, one of the riders got a little sideways and fell off, and she wasn't moving. And so oh, I had my phone right in my pocket. <laughs> You there?
0: Yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: That's okay. So, um, so I had my phone in my pocket, and I don't think the instructor had a phone. None of the riders had a phone. It was a very small auditor field because it was such an ugly day, and I immediately called the organizer because I couldn't remember her exact address. Told her to call nine one one, and she uh, and a nurse. There was one of the riders that was riding. The clinic was a nurse. Next thing I know, a couple couldn't have been more than a minute and a half later. She and the nurse were um, headed towards us on the ATV. So that rider, because of the fact that I had my phone ever so handy, um, got medical attention right away, and um, I was I was really uh, happy, and everybody was kind of impressed with the jeans the, the because they saw the cell phone pocket, and, you know, after all the, and it the was all right, but um, it was, I was really glad that I had my phone. Yeah, so and handy. you were
0: able to uh, just whip it right out, make the call, get emergency help, mm-hmm. um, and as, yep. As we've all heard a million times it's the the faster in a trauma particularly a head injury the faster you get medical treatment the better the outcome so so good job i love the cell phone pocket on the smooth stride riding jean and uh thank you for putting that design in there
1: you are welcome
0: well Des, it's been great talking to you and I just I wanna thank you one more time for creating the best riding jeans on earth. And why don't you tell everybody where they can find out more about smooth stride riding jeans?
1: All righty. We have a wonderful website and you can go to Um, We have stride Facebook page. Um, I have an email address for the jeans only, it's dj at com. and um, yeah, I'm so glad that you like them and I am here and ready and willing and loving to help anybody who might want to come and check out the jeans. If somebody wants to give you a call, where can they reach you? 509-521-5496. All right, Julie, we'll talk to you next month. It was great talking to you,
0: Des. Take care. The difference between a 17-year-old horse that's had a lot of training but has had nothing but very strict handling all his life. Not that he, he does plenty wrong, trust me, but he knows he's gonna get in trouble. It's a, it's a conscious choice on his part, weighing whether or not it's worth making me mad over. So a horse this old that's never been mishandled, he doesn't know all the things that some bad horses, and I shouldn't say bad, they're not bad. They've learned the wrong thing, because they learn so fast. One time, you ask that horse to canter, and he crow hops a little bit because the saddle maybe isn't comfortable, and you stop him. That's all it took. Chances are, he figured out all he's got to do is crow hop, and you're going to stop him. He now knows that. So you know, we, we often, so often get frustrated in queuing or whatever, this stupid horse, he doesn't do the flying lead changes right. Well, we all know, you guys wouldn't be sitting here if you didn't already know this. It's it's always the rider. So if my timing, this was a drill team maneuver, just go with it. (laughs) If, when I make a correction with that artificial aid to reinforce the natural aid, which was the cue I gave, if the timing is adequate, well, let's say the timing is good. If the timing is good, guarantee you, the horse learned the very first time. You're done with that reinforcement. If the timing was just adequate, meaning more than a second between the cue and the reinforcement, I would put that in the adequate category. One second is adequate, half a second is ideal. If the pressure is adequate and the timing is adequate, you, you might have to do it one more time before the horse learns. If you're trying to teach a horse a cue and you're getting in a five, six, seven, eight times, you need to hire a trainer. That's operator error. So, what? So timing and pressure are the quintessential ingredients of good horse training. So, and I, I promise, gals, we're going to actually do some cueing at some point. But I want you to just keep doing what you're doing and riding with me. You're, you're visual aids. Um, You're my PowerPoint. Um, So let's let's talk a little bit about the science of cueing then. So most of the training that we do with horses is called negative reinforcement. Well and negative reinforcement, first of all, let me tell you what right now it is not punishment. Erase that from your brain Negative reinforcement is not punishment. Um, Negative reinforcement means that in this order, you apply an aversive stimulus, you wait for the horse to give the correct response, and then you take away the pressure. So I cue, and then as soon as my horse does what I ask, I stop cueing, I took away the pressure. And that, that means it was negative reinforcement. So it just means you apply pressure, and then when you get the response you want, you remove the pressure. But in that equation, well, there's two super, super important factors. First is timing. The horse's brain is quite simplistic compared to ours and we can think about things for a long time and we can worry about things in the future and think about things in the past and all this stuff that a horse isn't going to really do um... and I, I used to always think about when my father was the reinforcement in our household and my mother not so much but the threat of go to your room and wait until your father gets home if it was three hours you sat there sweating bullets for three hours in your room, worrying about what was going to happen when Dad got home, which, by the way, nothing ever happened. He always played a tough you know, game, but it was like, you know, whatever. You're grounded, you know. <laughs> you don't get the ride tomorrow. <laughs> but um, so, but horses aren't that way. And so I can say, so I'm going to do something to you three hours from now, and you can think about it from now until then. If it doesn't happen right now to a horse, it doesn't exist. So the reinforcement, in order for a horse to make an association between his actions, which would be his response to the cue, and the release of pressure, that release of pressure has to come within three seconds of the cue. In order for the horse to make an association between the cue and his response, the release of pressure, the negative reinforcer, has to happen within three seconds. However, the sooner in the three seconds it happens, the faster the horse learns. The optimal time frame, according to research done at Colorado State University on horses, the optimal time frame is a one half of one second. And then as soon as I say that, I always see people give this look on their face like, oh. I'll never do that. I'll never be that good. But I'm here to tell you half a second is more time than you think it is. I will show you. So let's, if I'm jogging, each of these beats is about a half a second. Cue, spur. Cue, whatever, reinforcement. So half a second is not as quick as you think it is. But here's the good news in all of that. One second is adequate. Your horse will likely learn on the very first time if that reinforcement or release or reward comes within three seconds of the behavior. Does that make sense to everybody? That's a a critical thing to understand. So if it doesn't, now would be a good time to say it doesn't make sense. So that's the timing factor. The next factor is that's equally important to the, as, the, well, it may not be as important as the timing. The timing of the release and the timing of the reinforcement is the most important thing. But followed very closely by, well using an adequate amount of pressure. And here, I'm gonna get into another scientific basis of training that's really important for all horse people, all people that handle horses to know. And this is a scientific basis of training all animals, by the way, including humans, including husbands. Why'd you pick on him? I'm just saying, don't tell my husband because he's here somewhere. Um, It says this, whatever the animal is doing right now is what he's most motivated to do, looking out the gate. Let's just use that for an example. Whatever he's doing right now is what he's most motivated to do. If I wish to change that behavior, I simply have to find the amount of pressure that motivates change. Find the amount of pressure that motivates change. And so people go, oh, okay. That's easy enough to understand. How much pressure is that? How much pressure is that? Do you know? Whatever it takes. That is your second perfect answer of the day, isn't it? Two. Well, two that I know of. You may have been giving perfect answers all day. Um, whatever take pressure it takes to get a response so if okay so let's get back to our lazy beginner horse that's learned to ignore no matter how hard that kid kicks this pony not going anywhere and then you can't kick hard for more really ten seconds You're you got to stop you can't you just can't keep doing that so horses, get re, they get rewarded constantly. Just ignore it, just ignore it, it'll go away. Good, it went away. Oh, it started again. That's okay. I know how to deal with it. Just ignore it. It'll go away. Um, so let's say I'm going to use my crop. This is a Rommel rein, right? We love Rommel reins because you get to carry a spanker at all times. <laughs> and, and trust me when I tell you they know that. Um, But, so let's say I got that lazy pony and I'm going to teach him to respond to a light leg aid, I got to get on him, um, and when the reins totally loose, to make sure he has no excuse for not going, I'm going to give him the lightest leg aid possible, and if I don't get an immediate response, I would be holding the crop right here, whip, whatever. If I did not get an immediate response to that light leg aid on a trained horse, remember, this is not how to train your horse. This is how to (laughs) correct your horses from learning something bad. Um, Light leg aid, spank. So I would go, leg, spank. And it would be my intention to crack his ribs hard enough that one time that I never have to use that again, ever, forever, and ever, amen, because the next time I put a light leg on him, he's like, yes, ma'am, I can't wait to get out of here. (laughs) And then I have to sort of school the rider, too, but... So that's the adequate amount of pressure. Now, somebody in the audience right now, I guarantee you, is thinking, did she just say she would crack that horse in the ribs? OMG. I'm going to post it on the internet. Um, But you tell me what you think is more humane. A horse that when I barely flex my calf muscles, steps right off to work, the way I asked him to do, or a horse that I got to spur and spur some more and hit some more and hit some more and hit some more. Every single time I get on and we're kicking and pulling and kicking and pulling and kicking and getting in a big fight over and all of that. So if I can rectify the behavior by giving him a spanking one time, don't you think that's a better deal for the horse? But it'll only be one time if if your timing is good and the amount of pressure is adequate. And here's the sticky part. I can't tell you what pressure that's gonna be. Because every single horse is different, and every single situation that would be requiring you to reuse pressure is different. It depends on how motivated the animal is to begin with. And so if, in other words, if, let's take uh, Caitlin's horse is super nice, Hershey. He's a, I don't know if I can't remember, 14 or 15-year-old, obviously super broke, nice horse. Is there anyone here that wouldn't want to put your kid or grandkid on this horse here? Um, but he looked out the window, he's going by the gate and he's looking out the window. That's his way of saying, I am not here in the game with you, Caitlin. I want to leave. So I would correct my horse for that, I've corrected him duly for it several times already. Um, but he's not very motivated to look out the window. He's not very, he's like, I know I have to stay in here, but wouldn't it be nice? I know I have to stay in here. Um, To fix that behavior should take almost no pressure at all because the horse is not motivated to act that way. All we have to do is tell him we don't like that. And he's like, okay. There he's looking out the window, so just bump your right rein at a girl, that's it. Okay, well, maybe that wasn't enough pressure to motivate change, was it? So how do you know if you used enough pressure? The behavior changes, but you might not know that for a minute. How are you gonna know right when you're using that pressure if it was enough or too much? If the horse overreacts. So the only way I know If the amount of pressure I used, and now we're talking about the pressure of a correction, not a cue, a reinforcement for a cue, but the only way I know if it was enough pressure is by how the horse responded to the pressure. Every situation is different. How hard is what you're asking the horse to do? You know what, when, I, when I'm schooling like on the groundwork and I'm teaching you to stand still and not move, that's not very hard. Standing still, not hard. Shouldn't take that much pressure, but for some horses that are just totally out of their wits and struggling, it might be a lot of pressure in that moment. So, how highly motivated the horse is has a bearing on how much pressure you use. Um, and... Also, how hard it is, what you're asking him, how hard is it is for the horse to comply. If what I'm asking the horse to do is things like rollbacks and spins and uh, big, hard, crazy stuff, I might have to use a lot of pressure to motivate him to do that. I might have to occasionally bump him with the spur. Um, So every situation is different in how much pressure it takes. But always the timing um, of the the pressure of the reinforcement is critical. Okay, so how much time do I have left? Sweet, twice in one day. Okay, now, gals, go ahead, let's go back to our kind of circle. I'm going to actually start pretending you're here. I've been watching you because. Nobody could teach riding for 30 years without growing eyes in the back of their head, so I know everything you've been doing. And um, let's talk more specifically about how you use your aids and how you're gonna teach cues and reinforce cues. Um, And by the way, because I know always at the end I'm running out of time, so I forget to say this, but Almost all of this that I'm about to talk about is on one video of mine, which happens to be called Communication and Control. It's all about cueing and using the aids. Um, And our booth is over in the trade show, all the way in the back, in the middle. And um, we've got all of our toys and videos um, there, if you want to check it out. But, so getting back to our natural aids, your natural aids are the things that you were born with that allow you to communicate with the horse, and they are in their order of importance. Your seat, your legs, your hands, and your voice. Those are the four traditional natural aids. If you were to pick up the oldest known book of horsemanship, the book of Xenophon, which was written about 3,500, 4,000 years ago, you could open up any page of it and read about stuff we're talking about here at the expo including the four natural aids your seat legs hands and voice and i want to talk about how to use them um we're going to focus primarily on your seat legs and hands which are your main tools and but just to address the voice aid quickly um, horses are very easily voice trained you just simply give a voice cue and you give it one time and then you reinforce it with another aid so um let's say I wanted to teach the horse um, let's just do something easy <laughs> And let's say I was going to teach my horse the voice cue the magic word that all horses should know and um, so all I got to do is to teach the voice cue. Is I'm going to do nothing else with my body or anything, and he'll stop because he, if he's listening. But uh, see, just the B-U-T word he thought was going to be a. Um, so I'll just give the voice cue and then immediately reinforce it. So I would just go whoa, and then go right to my reins. And then, so I would stop him manually, and then we'd try it again. We'd try it around a little ways, and I'd do nothing with anything in my body, nothing at all in my body, and just say, Well, reinforce. Now, he gets an honest reinforcement there, you know why? Because he was looking out the gate. That was a setup. Uh, we were going straight towards the gate, hardest possible time to stop your horse. So anyway, so that would be, so voice cue is easy to teach. Um, of course, the horses learn to associate a sound with with the behavior. So it's not that they understand words. So I couldn't say, uh, Julie, when you get to that post right over there, the third one on the right, I would like you to go ahead and stop. Um, Whoa. Well, They associate a sound with the behavior, and they learn to associate it through a reinforcement. So you're in the round pen, you go cluck, cluck means trot, kiss means canter, whatever. Make the sound, crack the whip. Make the sound, crack the whip, until and that adequate timing and pressure, within minutes, your horse ought to know that voice cue. But that voice cue can only mean one thing. It can only be used in the exact circumstance that you want. Um and woe is the big culprit there. People tend to say woe when they get scared, not when woe means stop dead in your tracks and don't move. It doesn't mean slow down, I'm getting scared. So um we don't say you know, we reserve that word for uh only stop our horses are trained that woe means stop and back up. So, and, and they learn that word and it's their favorite word of course because we have quarter horses and all they want to do is stop. And so invariably any word that starts with W works. So somebody else say something and I'll go, what? And he stops. But, so voice cues are easy to teach. You should do that and you should use them. And I like to use a voice cue um as i'm cueing the horse once you've taught a voice cue it helps him anything i can do to help him know what i'm asking i'm all in favor of and so i know when like for instance on the counter cue i and I, this is so hard for me to even uh i ha, i can't even hardly talk about it because i just do it right at a certain time but it's right before i ask him to step into the canter because it, it, it's just, I, I just find for him that boy, if that voice cue comes just the instant before I'm about to ask him, he, he steps into it easier. So I like to use that voice cue as a hint or a warning or a reminding up oh, here's what I'm about to ask you to do. So um, your primary aids are your seat legs and hands. And these are the three things that are in contact with the horse all of the time. And by the way, this is kind of funny. I'm riding Western, and you're riding English, and my horse is bigger than yours. It's just kind of funny, because that's not usually the way it goes. But come right up here beside me, because that was good. So I want you to just kind of, and I could be riding, I'm riding Western, I could be riding two-handed, but not in this bridle. Um, But uh, So I'm just other than me being one-handed and uh, Celia being two-handed, we are in the exact same position on our horses. And the same part of our bodies are in contact with the same part of the horse's bodies. And you're using your calf constantly, as am I. Your calves should never stop communicating to the horse. So your calves control the middle of the horse, and so like right now he's looking there, I could put a little calf on him and say, no, I want the ribs over there, I want your attention over here. So your calves are constantly communicating the horse, but our aids are the same. Hand position is the same, so your hands should always be in front of the saddle. So I give, um, <laughs> liking that other horse a little too much. So, Uh, I use my hands the same way whether I'm riding without the bridle um, or with the bridle. So you don't don't train and train and train and train on your horse that this means turn and then take the bridle away and just don't do that anymore. So any movement of my hands, if my horse has reason to believe I'm gonna be asking something of him, um, any movement of my hands should be meaningful to him. And you, you can see now he's looking out the other way so he gets a little bump. Um, but you can see how easy it is f- for him to see. Well, And so the farther forward your hands are, the better information you give to your horse of where you want him to go. And by the way, the farther forward your hands are, the better your balance is too. So. We never, no matter uh, what, what kind of discipline you're riding, your hands should always be in front of the saddle. And you want to have your hands always reaching for the horse's mouth. Whether you ride on contact or not is re- irrelevant. Your hands should always be reaching and stretching and giving more. I take away rein. I take away reins when my horse is doing something wrong. And I give. At all other times, I give to him, so my hands are giving and, uh, and not taking away rain. So, um, okay, so your seat legs and your hands, we're in the same place, whether we're English or Western. And also, your seat aid is the most magical of aids because it's really two aids in one. Sometimes you hear it referred to as your weight aid, and sometimes you hear it referred to as your seat aid. Um, I like to think of them slightly different. I like to think of them as two different aids, but they're really not because you can't separate your weight from your seat. So here's the way I think of it intellectually. I think of my seat aid as my two seat bones that are right now pointing straight down into the saddle. In a place in my horse's back where he is very very sensitive to pressure my two seat bones even through the saddle the pad this is my saddle made by circle y that i designed this is actually the very first one ever made not the first one after we we actually they had to make several before i was happy with it this was the first production one And so it's kind of old, but um, my saddles are designed to be very close contact, because I grew up riding English horses, and I was used to close contact saddles, and I really like that. Also, you may have noticed, since it's the number one comment I get when I'm in public somewhere, I'm not very big, and so I want narrow. I want everything here to be minimized and narrow so that I can be sitting straight up over my two seat bones. So I actually designed a lot of things into my saddle to promote the rider being in a correct position. So this particular saddle has a really nice little pocket there for my seat bones. (laughs) And uh, by the way, it's got memory foam in the seat. Doesn't get any better than that. so that's one way I think of my seat aid, and I'm going to come back to how I would use that. But the other thing is your weight, which is your center of gravity. So when we are in correct position with the horse, and Kaylin, um, uh, go back to just walking for a minute, and I want you to um, just pull your leg back a little bit from your hips there. I want you to look at me for a second. You're young, so you can actually do this. Take your foot out of the stirrup one at a time and actually sort of twist your leg like this. So twist your thighs in and then put your feet back in the stirrups. Yeah. And um, I want your leg just underneath you a little bit more. Perfect. Just stop right where you are. Now look at me. Now what I want you to do is get back here on your pockets hmm mm-hmm. and you, you kind of have to scoot up in the saddle a little bit first and then I want you to actually kind of round your lower back a little bit mm-hmm, just like that perfect beautiful keep going more look at me more than that good so that you kind of feel your back of your legs lengthen right down into your heels what you have right now is perfect position And just a minute ago before i made those two adjustments having you turn your legs in a little bit and move your legs back and then having you round your lower back a little bit um, before you were arching your back and you were also pushing your legs out in front of you now when your legs are out in front of you a lot of a lot of riders whose legs are out in front of them are pushing their legs out in front of them and I have a feeling that was you. If you. I think if you are just sort of in the right position and relaxed, your leg is gonna hang in perfect position. But have, has anyone ever told you to keep your heels down? Ha, ha, raise your hand if anybody's ever told you to keep your heels down. So sometimes so there's this funny progression in riding where when you're a beginner rider, it's like all oh, you hear, it, get your heels down, get your hands down, put your hands down, get your heels down, get your heels down, put your hands down so pretty soon you master that and now you're riding around like this so a lot of times when people um have their legs too far forward which is for our horses that's the cue to back up so he's like is this a trick um a lot of people are just pushing their legs forward and um, you need not do that. So you want that leg hanging straight down so that your calf is in constant contact. Now, the hips are even more important. So I want all of my weight on those two seat bones, no weight on my crotch. So I want my belly button sucked in, I want this upper body to be very nice and tall as you were, but I want your tailbone tucked underneath you, and I want you back on your pockets, and almost a little bit rounded in, in your lower back back here, because that's how you use your seat aid. And the weight aid is that um, when you are in correct position with the horse, as you are now, you are balanced right over the horse's center of gravity. Above and behind, just like when you ride piggyback, how your center of gravity is just above and behind whoever's carrying you. And so your horse can feel that very, very clearly. He knows better than you when you are in balance with him and when you are not. most horses, by the way, when you're not in balance with them, they will try to get you back in balance. So they will move in the direction where you're out of balance. They'll either stop, if they think that would help, or they'll move in the direction where you are, if you were riding drunk or something, to try to get you back up underneath them. So the horse is very aware of your center of gravity, so we can use our weight aid to cue the horse to go forward or stop or slow down. So that's your, your seat is actually two A's in one. Let's go ahead and have you go back at a walk. Let's say, I, I, um, yeah, just walk for now. Your seat is two A's in one. So, so here's a way for us to put it together in terms of cueing. I want you to think of having three gears to your seat. Watch your lower back, tuck that tailbone under. Three gears to your seat, they are neutral, Forward and reverse. Neutral gear is the gear that you ride in almost all the time. It is what we call a following seat. So once I cue my horse to trot, and I start riding the trot with the following seat, that means that a properly trained horse, once you tell him to do something, should keep doing that thing until you tell him something different. So, as soon as my horse is at the speed I want, I go immediately to a neutral position, um, which is the balanced position, the vertical position, and I just ride the trot. If I stop riding the trot, He should stop moving. So a following seat, so we ask our horses to canter. As long as I'm moving my body in the canter motion, he should remain cantering. And when I stop riding the canter, I'm going to give him other cues, too. But a big part of the cue is going to be well that I just stop riding canter. So, and then by the way, the cue to canter we always incorporate how you ride that gate in the queue. So, for instance, we could talk about this. I'll be doing a presentation on cantering, I think, in the morning. Um, I'm gonna do a lot to set my horse up to canter. I'm gonna position him, haunches in. I'm gonna make sure, I'm gonna put my legs on him and make sure he's listening to me, the ears are back on me. I'm gonna put my outside leg back. But the actual cue to canter comes when I move my seat in the canter motion. So, neutral gear is a following seat. And we ride in neutral gear almost all the time, because once you've told a horse to do something, you go immediately to neutral gear. And the horse should keep doing that until you tell him something different. We use forward and reverse gear to speed up and slow down. And and, in its most simplistic form, um, forward gear is simply a shift of your gravity forward. You guys, turn towards me and just stop for a minute so you can watch. They've never ridden with me, by the way, and I did nothing to explain to them what they should be doing, and they're just doing perfectly, aren't they? Good job. (laughs) Um, So, In its most simplistic form, here I am in neutral gear. I told him to stop, he is indeed stopped, so I'm immediately in neutral gear. He is indeed creeping. So when I shift into forward gear, I'm simply gonna inhale, expand my lungs, move my center of gravity slightly forward, and at the same time my legs will slightly close on the horse. So it just looks like this. Back to neutral. And reverse gear is just the opposite of that. Back to neutral. So um, forward gear, all of your cueing whenever possible should originate from something you're doing with your seat. And so my weight aid, by inhaling and expanding my lungs, my hands automatically give a release. As I shift a little bit of weight forward onto my crotch, because remember in neutral gear, all your weight is on your two seat bones, no weight on your crotch. As I inhale and move my upper body slightly forward, a little bit of weight comes onto my crotch, which means my center of gravity is now slightly in front of his. That's the main cue. And because, because you're only in balance with the horse, when you have alignment with your ear, shoulder, hip, and heel. Let me just show you this real quickly. So in the standing position, I can still be perfectly balanced, um, but I still have ear, shoulder, hip, and heel alignment. It's just that the whole line is canted now. See that? And so what happens then, as I shift into forward gear and my upper body comes slightly forward and my center of gravity comes slightly forward, my lower legs naturally come back and close on the horse. So they naturally come into this queuing position to go. Now, we don't, you know, uh, we, our horses are super broke, but we have to be very careful who we put on them because if you kick them, they're going to leave the county um, because we would never kick them. And so, um, it's, it's, the cue is just this slight closing of your leg, a slight touching of the calves. It's not a, if I'm going to actually flap my legs because I want to get the horse's attention, or let's say I'm riding a young colt or something, I just do this. If I'm moving my legs, boy, you ought to be moving a little faster than that. So... Um, In other words, I would never kick them. I might flap my legs a little bit to get their attention. So neutral gear, let's go back. Oh, wait, I was showing you this. So neutral gear, we ride in almost all the time. So when we cue the horse to go more forward, you're gonna simply just inhale, shift your center of gravity, come immediately back to neutral. If I were cueing the horse to trot, I, would, I might do a little double bump with both calves and I would immediately start lifting in the trot motion. I say the double bump with both calves because many horses are trained that way. My horses are trained to cue into the trot from your seat, so I inhale, shift forward, and if I just start, I'm exaggerating, (laughs) if I just start sort of lifting in the trot motion, they trot, because they take that to be a cue. So, um, and then reverse gear, this is, the reverse gear is what people have the most trouble with, and this is because what's the first, if I say, stop your horse, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? This, so for pretty much everybody here, the first thought that comes into your mind when you start thinking about stopping is to go to the reins, and the reins are not a cueing device. The reins are a reinforcement device. You will never, ever, ever in any discipline or in any kind of performance, have a good stop on a horse by using the reins. If you're using the reins to stop, something has already gone wrong. As they're just walking around a nice big circle around me, um, I want to talk about, actually, you guys just walk for me for a minute, and let's talk, before we get too far into the canter, I want to talk briefly about the other two gates of the horse, or let's say we're going to talk about all three gates of the horse. The natural gates of the horse are walk, trot, and gallop. Canter, or lope just mean a slow controlled gallop. And um, gallop is sort of their preferred gait. You hardly ever look out into a pin full of horses and see them doing a little collected pirouette or anything like that, unless they're fixing a wheel around and kick somebody. Um, but we teach the horse through training to do a canter or a lope they mean the same thing. Lope is a slang Western term that comes from the Spanish word gallop. Um, And it is just a slow controlled canter. and I mean gallop. And so um, let's look at the walk first. The walk is a four beat lateral gait. So it's important that you start understanding the footfalls of your horse because how he moves and how that in turn moves your body um, is important to incorporate into your cueing and into your riding. So the rhythm of the walk is a four beat lateral rhythm and so lateral means side and so when we talk about footfalls in terms of lateral there so she throws in a little lateral movement show off Um, that's why we call them lateral movements, because it means sideways, and or side. But so the footfalls of the walk are right hind, right fore, left hind, left fore. And right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, left. And so because the so- legs on the same side are working together, and you have this very lateral feel, uh, movement in the horse, the rider, just to exaggerate, I'll... Uh, kind of exaggerate on here, uh, it, the walk has a very lateral feel to it. So you feel your hips sort of and your legs sort of swinging side to side. We don't want to ever allow any of this motion to come into our upper body. But if you can train your lower body to totally move fluidly with the horse that's underneath you at all times um, and then separate from the belly button up so that this part is not moving, then um, you really can, uh, I'm just gonna go up to the trot for a second to show you what I mean. So, well, not that I can do it perfectly, but uh, on a smooth gated horse it's easier. But, so I can just let my lower body just move fluidly with the horse in the rhythm that the horse is dictating. But I don't ever want that rhythm to come into my upper body um, and I say this to you because I do a lot of clinics every year and I try, we work on this and I can guarantee you that a third of the people in the clinic as soon as they find the feel down here they start going and riding like this and, and that's of course very disconcerting to your horse because there's too much movement going on here. So, Generally, our goal is that the upper body is not moving at all, and you're creating a separation here. So, the walk, then getting back to the gates, walks four-beat lateral gait. So you feel this right, left, right, left movement. You should always be aware of this rhythm, and the, because this right-left rhythm of your legs corresponds to the rhythm of your horse's hind legs, corresponds to how you use your legs. So if I were going to ask him to move sideways, I would use my leg in the rhythm that he's moving his leg. So the walk has no suspension. Suspension occurs when all four of the horse's feet are off the ground at the same time. And in the walk, the horse has two, three feet on the, time, all on the ground all the time. And so it's very smooth. Anybody can pretty much stay on a horse at a walk. All right, ladies, let's bring it up to the trot. The trot is a two-beat diagonal gait with suspension. And so, diagonal means opposite corners, and two beats mean that the feet hit the ground in pairs. In fact, they hit the ground in diagonal pairs. So. Left uh, right hind hits the ground same time as the left fore, and vice versa. And so we have what at the trot is what's called diagonal pairs. So we have the left diagonal pair and the right diagonal pair. And the reason why the, uh, this is referred to as right diagonal pair is because footfalls always begin with a hind foot. So movement in the horse originates from behind. And so as we start analyzing and feeling the footfalls, we always describe them starting with a hind foot. So you have the right diagonal pair and the left diagonal pair. And I'm not going to get into posting diagonals, but that's what that has to do with. So it has to do with Posting, rising on a certain diagonal. Um, All right, let's go ahead and walk for a minute. And I want to describe go ahead and put your horse out on a free rein, all the reins, and let him put his head down and sneeze. It's very important for horses that. you always periodically throughout your ride if i were going to ride half an hour i'd do it at least twice put him out on a completely free rein let him stretch his neck let him stretch his back and most importantly let him clear his airway he cannot clear his airway when you're holding his head up with the reins and um this is fortunately not a super dusty environment but there is some dust here and uh, so you saw that because as soon as you let Celia let go of that horse first, he didn't even have his head all the way down for he sneezed so uh, so do that for your horse it's only uh, fair. Okay so I'm going to describe the footfalls of the canter and then we're going to watch them. The, the canter is the most complicated of gates. It is the only gate at which the footfalls change the pattern when you change directions. In other words when I trot, um, no matter which way I go, the pattern of footfalls is exactly the same. And um, so changing directions doesn't require any reorganization. But when the horse canters and changes direction, he has to also change leads. And So that's, and that's the flying lead change, or let's see if I can do a simple lead change. I'm not sure that I can. Well, if it involves stopping, I know I can. Uh, So, simple lead change versus a flying lead change. So, also the canter is three beats, and the horse has four legs. So that right there makes it complicated. So the footfalls of the canter. I'm going to describe the left lead, ladies, and then we're going to all canter to the left. Um, the footfalls on the left lead. The stride begins with the outside hind leg. So the right hind, outside hind. Are you done yet? Excuse me. Um, so the stride begins with the right hind. The horse pushes off into the stride with the right hind for the left lead and the left hind for the right lead. So just remember it's opposite. Um, the second beat of the canner is the inside diagonal pair. So that's going to be my left hind and right four. And these two ha- uh, hands, <laughs> these two feet are going to hit the ground at exactly the same time. That's the second beat of the canter. The third and final beat is the leading foreleg, the inside foreleg, which in this case is the left foreleg. There is a moment when the horse's entire body weight is suspended on that leg, and then it all, and then that's followed by the moment of suspension when all of his feet are off the ground, and then it starts all over again. Outside hind, inside diagonal pair, leading foreleg, inside foreleg. Um, now... Momentarily, we're going to canter, and I want you guys to just watch the feet. And I want you to just focus on the second beat of the canter, which is going to be this diagonal pair. If you just keep your eyes on those two feet, you can sort of make sense of the rest of it. Also, uh, so let's go ahead and prepare your horses to canter. Give them a warning, a cue is about to come. And then when you're ready, ask him to counter. Nice transition, um, Abby. Very nice, very nice. Now, I would just let him let him go. Don't hold him back, because you know why? This is one big arena. If he gets in, Just put him on a bigger circle if he wants to. Now, don't let him go faster and faster. Just say, no, don't go faster and faster. But do not hold him in a speed, Abby. That's um, not good training. So a horse should maintain the speed that you dictate without you holding him there. If you're holding your horse there or constantly telling your horse to keep going because he's a lazy poke, um, that's, you have a codependent relationship that is um, not productive. So once I have told a horse to go a certain speed, I expect him to stay there. Whether I have him on a loose rein or a long rein, so if he wants to be in a hurry, probably because you've done you know stuff that's fast like the drill team or whatever, I would just let him go. But I would um, I would control his speed through arcing him. So here's what I want you to do: I want you to go back out. I'm going to finish this in just a second. I want you to make like a big, bigger circle. And as he feels like he wants to go faster, because that's kind of who he is. I want you to loosen up the outside rein and pick up on the inside rein in front of your horn to just ask him to bend. Say, don't, I don't care if you slow down or not, but if you want to go this fast, you probably need to be bending, okay? So you're gonna use your bending aid, which is this right left hand coming up and in, in front of the, with your pinky scooping up right in front of the horn. Go ahead, put him back up to the left lead lobe and stay there until, keep the, keep the outside rein soft. Good, good. Now, I would have his nose way farther around than that. Um, and then when I felt, that's better, then when I felt him slow down, I'd give him his nose back. Oh, you want to go that fast? Well, then maybe you need to bend. Oh, you want to go slow? Well, maybe you can go straight. But one rein, you're still using two. And as long as you still use two, you're holding the horse in the speed. a girl. Good. Perfect. See him slow. See him slow. Now, here's what I'd do. I'd go ahead and I call it doing some time. When it, if I've resorted to an exercise like this where I'm making it harder for the horse, he needs to do a little time there so he appreciates how hard it is. So you saw right there when she got that horse to, to bend a little, how he slowed down right here. That's what we wanted, and he needs to be released and rewarded for that, but I'd want to do a little time first. So like... Instant perfect isn't good enough. Let's, I want you to think about how hard this is to canter with your neck bent. And um, so I would do some time on that, meaning I might go a laugh around, um, and then I'd wait for them to get super soft and super slow, and then I'd release into to straight. So no charge for that extra little training exercise. Uh, let's get back to our football. So now, in, and I want you to just keep playing with that, Abby, until I... I uh, suggest we do something different. So, we're going to counter again on the left lead. And um, one more thing I want you to notice as you watch the footfalls. Good girl. Don't hold him with that outside rein. Don't hold him with either rein. Bend and then just make him stay in the bend. Um, good girl. There. It's like, hmm, I'm not in quite as big a hurry as I thought I was. Um, So after you've done a lap or two, then start looking for uh, him to go perfect, or, or not perfect, but better. When you feel him slow down, let him go straight, and then when you feel him speed up, ask him to bend again, and you can make the circle smaller at any time. Okay, so on the left lead, one more thing I want you to notice is that both the left fore and the left hind are reaching farther forward than the right legs. And that's why we call it the left lead, because both the hind and the fore are leading. And it's important for you to understand this because most people think it's just the front legs. If, if you do, it's because you were taught to look down at the front legs. The, the hind legs are actually the most important part of the lead. And if the horse is not on the same lead in front and behind, that's called the cross canter. Um, it's technically called being disunited, and it's a very uncomfortable ride. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many how you know what the cross canter feels like? Good. Uh, not good because <laughs> when you feel it, you should uh, transition your horse down and, and pick up the uh, correct correctly. Wow, Abby, that looks awesome. Um, okay. Ooh. Julie's like, could you just shut up about the lead here? Let's let him have a break again. Nice, Abby. See, that's what I'm talking about. Love a lead. Now go ahead and let him walk when you feel like everything's just what you want from him. And um, so that was nice. Um, see how he's softening through his whole body now and starting to use himself a little bit better? So I like it when an exercise sort of kills two birds with one stone, so we're working on bending, Um, we're working on that horse softening and relaxing through his body, but we're also working on speed control at the same time. Alright, so when the horse is on the left lead, both left legs are reaching farther forward than the right legs, and also, he's picking up both left legs higher than the right legs. So there's two ways that you can feel which lead your horse is on from the saddle. Feeling leads is one of the easiest things to feel. We do our riding students a great disservice when we teach them to look down to see what lead they're on because it's really easy to feel. But once you look, once you've been trained to look, you'll never learn to feel the lead until you stop looking because um, the feel is there, it's quite easy. But as soon as you look, your mind overpowers anything that you feel. So um, there's two clues to how you feel which lead your horse is on. So if his both left legs are leading, his back underneath you is crooked this way. So you will always feel your left hip and therefore your left leg in front of the right. And when you are secure in this feel, you'll actually feel it on the very first stride because as soon as the horse begins to push with this outside foot, you can actually feel it. So, um, so, you, so the back's crooked this way. Also, the back is crooked this way. So because he's picking up these two left legs higher, His back is crooked like this, and so actually, very similar just because of the way he's standing right now. He must have a foot cocked or something. Um, So you feel more weight in your right seat bone, and therefore in your right stirrup. So, this is going to look really goofy, but I know from video, uh, between the TV show and the videos that we produce, I watch a lot of video. And I know that when I think I'm really exaggerating something, sometimes on the video I can't, I can't even see what I was talking about. So I'm fixing to really exaggerate here so that I don't want anybody going, you should see how I saw Julie riding, but um, so when your heart is on the right lead, and um, so I've got my right leg forward, um, again I'm kind of exaggerating this, I've got more weight in the left stirrup, so on the right lead I'm kind of in a position like this and let's go this way. So I'm going to do a lead change coming straight towards you and center, no, 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 that way. <laughs> um, so now I'm on the left lead. So I'm sort of to exaggerate in a position like this and watch, center, thump. Now, that was his way of saying, you didn't do that right. And I'm sure I didn't do my best cue while I'm talking about it. So here I am again to exaggerate, no, we're not going to stop. In a position like this, center, go that way. Shh. <sighs> Um Okay, so how you ride any gait and how your body is positioned always has to do with how you cue him. The cue always incorporates that, so or should. so for instance, when I cue my horse to trot i don 't really use my legs I, I warn him I 'm about to cue him, and then I just start kind of uh, lifting my body in the trot motion, and so With the canter, um, it's the same thing. I'm going to go through the cue of the canter here in just a minute. But when you canter, your hips make a circle. Forward and down and up and back. Forward and down and up and back. And um, so when you cue the horse to canter, one of the, the main part of the cue is when you curl your hips and start moving them, In the counter motion. So, um, and one more thing for those of you that are sort of just learning the canter, I want to address the rider here for a minute. Um, You guys just let your horses walk for a second. Um, There's a really common mistake people make, most people make when learning to canter and it is simply sitting too far forward and closing their hips. And so I talked about this, no I didn't actually yesterday, (laughs) but it's very important when you're riding that your hips are as open as they can be. So um, one of the worst uh, things you can do in riding is have an arched back and a closed pelvis because as your horse moves, um, pelvis does a lot of um, shock absorbing. And if you watch what happens, and I'll only do this for a second because this is my number one horse. Uh, if I close my pelvis, I immediately start bouncing. And he immediately starts going, What is this Yahoo on my back doing? So, um, When you're just learning to canter, hopefully you have already spent a lot of time working at the trot. And by the way, there's a tenet of classical horsemanship that's thousands of years old that says the best way to improve the canter is to improve the trot. And and there never was a truer statement than that because the trot is actually a harder gait to ride. And there is much to accomplish at the trot, sitting trot, posting trot, standing trot, Collected trot, extended trot, working trot, um, circles, whatever. You name it, you can do it at the trot. And so what that saying, that tenet of classical horsemanship tells us is don't get in a hurry to canter. Neither the rider nor the horse needs to get in a hurry because there is much to be accomplished at the trot. And so, but here's what happens then. So if you follow that tenant, as you should, you've been spending a lot of time learning to trot. And so the trot has a lot of forward motion. So we're, uh, we're thinking a lot about coming up and forward, and there's a lot of vertical motion in the trot, which again makes us want to go up. And the canter is kind of a completely opposite movement. Because of the canter, you do better the farther back you sit. Well, actually, that's true of the trot, too. But So the canter, there's a moment in the canter stride when your hips are actually going in front of your shoulders. So if I sit back and let my shoulders get just a little bit behind my hips, my rear end is now glued to the saddle. But look what happens. As soon as I start getting my shoulders in front of the hips, and closing the pelvis, I start getting thrown <laughs> he's like, that's not in my contract. I'm not doing that. Uh, the slightest closure of your pelvis means that you lose that ability to have that circular motion. And that circular motion is like you're pushing a swing. Um, and that's why your shoulders kind of have to come back here. So as soon as you get your shoulders in front of the hips and this angle starts closing as he comes up uh, into suspension and his butt comes in the air it throws you up out of, the can- out of the saddle and so you get a posting motion at the canter all that rider needs to do is think about sitting behind the vertical all you gotta do is sit behind the vertical and all of a sudden your, your rear end will be just glued to the saddle. So. Um, Okay, so that was my little tip for uh, novice riders. Now let's talk about the cue to counter. Before we give any cue, it's only polite to tell the horse a cue is about to come. Because, as I talked about yesterday in uh, my behavior lecture, um, horses aren't super good thinkers. Thinking is hard work for a horse they prefer to have all the answers supplied to them and not have to think. That's why they like to do the same thing in the same order every day and they like sameness and routine and pattern because they don't have to think too hard. Thinking tends to wind them up. So, is do some water somewhere? Um, so, <laughs> I said, oh, by the way, Twyla, I don't intend to ride My horse's tail knotted, but I never know it's knotted. Once I put the knot in, I never see it again. (laughs) Once, thank you. Um, Could you give me some water? It's right there. Um, All right. So, the canter. We've got to wake the horse. Tell him. In other words, what I was going to say is that we don't expect our horses to have to think hard at every moment that we're riding them. That would be unfair, and if you do that, and uh, by the way, many people do. I see it every day. I see it in every single clinic I do. They just get their horse out, and they start training on him. They do all the fancy groundwork. They, they get on him, and they start before they even one time around. They're doing side passing and backing up, turning around, turn on forehand, turn on haunches. Um, they don't let their horses just sort of relax and move forward. Do a little something hard, then go do something easy. Um, but always, uh, we need to let our horses just chill out sometimes. Whether you're riding or on the ground, when your horse does something that you like, um, let him stop and rest and, and take attention away from him. He, he doesn't like your attention at every moment. He likes to be left alone, most of all. So as we're riding... I don't, again, I don't care how long you ride, give him a break sometime throughout your ride. Put him out on a long ride, line, lead, rein, <laughs> and um, let him have a break and not have to think. So now we got our three horses in here just going along, do doo, 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 and not thinking. That's what we want because see how relaxed they get. Before we ask him to do something, so we can't just from right here go, Kenner! Um, that would be silly. First of all, we need to gather the reins. And as you gather the reins, you're going to close your legs softly. So you can close a little calf contact. Soften your reins, soften. Don't, pull, don't pull him all the time. Let him, let him find slack there. Good. When he breaks at the pole like that, he should find slack there, not more pull. All right. So. The way we've all trained our horses, believe it or not, is that when I'm not going to ask anything of you, I'm going to put you out on a loose rein, I'm gonna, my attention's going to go somewhere else, I'm going to look real casual, um, this is my sign to him that he doesn't really have to think right now. But before I ask him to do something, I have to bring him attention and tell him that I'm about to cue him. So, Here's what I'm going to do. You guys do this along, you've already done it. <laughs> I'm going to slowly shorten my reins, just gently and softly. At the same time, I'm riding in a, in a big bit, and a rommel range, so I won't ever actually take contact, but just me shortening a little bit and lifting my hand a little bit. At the same time, I'm getting my legs a little bit more active. He's coming into more of a working frame, and as his ears come back on me, um, that's him telling me, okay, I'm ready for a cue. Anytime now, you can tell me something. So whenever you cue a horse, you always have to prepare him and warn him that a cue is about to come. Now we have to give him the canter cue. You guys go ahead and let your horse, I'm going to talk to the canter cue, so let him relax. Um, the canter cue, uh, if you ask 10 different trainers how to cue for canter, I would bet you get at least 12 answers. And, but, I'm just going to talk about one cue. Just know that there are some people that cue a little differently. Um, there's more than one way to skin a cat, which is a really weird saying. I don't really know where it comes from and I don't think I want to know. But, um, the way that I'm about to describe would, would be considered the classical way. Or, which is also the most common way that people cue for the canner because it is most consistent with the training we do with our horses and and the horse's balance and the horse's movement. Um, What's important in any cue is that there's always a sequence to your aids. So you do this, followed by that, followed by this. And you use the same sequence every time. And so my sequence for the canter cue is outside leg, inside rein, push with the seat. Another person's might be uh, inside rein, outside leg, push with the seat. That's okay, that's fine. What's important is that you use a sequence and you always use the same sequence because that's how horses learn best and horses learn patterns very fast. And so if I use the same sequence of my cue every time, in short order, and by the way, I use the exact same cue on a horse that's never cantered with a rider before as I would on a finished horse. The only, amount, the only difference in the cue is going to be the amount of time it takes to actually get the horse into the canter. Um, so like with a finished horse like this, outside leg, and you're pretty much into the canter because he knows the rest of it. He's like, I don't, don't bother with the rest of it, I know. Um, the, that young colt that's never cantered, the cue might go more like this. I might like go around and try outside leg, inside rein. Push, 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 push. And we might go halfway around the arena with me doing this until, sorry, dude, until he finally um, understands that that's what I want, Kenner. I'm like, good boy, you figured it out. So I, why would I give him a different cue? Because I want him to learn the same cue he's going to have as a finish horse. So um, let's break this down a little bit more. So if if I'm cueing my horse for the right lead now, which foot is he gonna push off with? Left hind, thank you very much. So um, I know, so here's the main thing about leads, and listen carefully, Abby, um, because hopefully your horse's right lead problem is is more of a cueing problem. I I do this clinic all the time and I always ask for a rider that's a lead problem. Almost always it's a cueing problem. The horse is, he's just been inadvertently trained not to think about what cue you're asking him, or the rider's not asking him effectively, or um, he's been actually anti trained. Like um, sometimes rope horses always start on the left lead. Um, there are certain things that we do with horses that tend to make them one leaded, um, but they didn't, that happened accidentally. But so hopefully we can fix this with cueing. So if my horse is going to push off with the left hind, the most important determining factor of which lead the horse takes is where his haunches are at the moment that you cue him. And so if I want him to take the right lead, I have to push his haunches haunches to the right. And what that does is it brings his um, uh, outside hind leg up underneath his belly. So if I make him go way haunches in, so I push his hips as far to the right as I can, his left hind is so far up under his belly (laughs) that when I cue him he has to take the right lead. And so the first part of that canter cue is your outside hind leg. So let's say I was going to ask him for the left lead now. So I'm going to reach back about six inches, give a little bit of pulsating pressure uh, with my Achilles tendon to ask the horse to displace his hip to the right, left. And then the second part of the cue is going to be a shift of balance in my seat because remember I said when he's on the left lead, his, you're, you're to exaggerate, you're kind of in a position like this and when he's on the right lead, you're kind of in a position like this, okay? So first I use my outside leg to set him up haunches in. That tells him what lead to take and that also tells him you're about to ask for canter because it's the only cue we use our legs one at a time on. The trot cue we use our legs simultaneously on. So, so, so a, a train horse starts thinking canter right away as soon as I displace his, his hips. So when I say lift the inside rein, If you were riding two-handed, what you... That got my attention, too. um, What you would do is really just kind of... It's not really a rain cue. In other words, you're not pulling on the the mouth, and you, for dang sure, aren't pulling back on it because if you're you're pulling back on the rain at the moment you ask him to canter, you're lying to him, and you're asking him to move into the bit which is now going to hurt him because you're holding it. So... um, just a slight lift actually of your inside shoulder kind of weights you on the outside which is the position you're going to be on that lead. So that lift, slight lift of the inside rein is actually a rebalancing of the rider into the position the rider is going to be in when the horse is on that lead. So it's kind of more information about the lead to take. And then the actual cue to canter comes when you push with your seat. So um, let's do a few canter transitions then. So I'm going to wake my horse up, outside leg, push him haunches in, a little shift of my weight to the outside, and a push with my seat. I like to use the kissing sound. And I don't use it for anything else and I use the kissing sound right before I push with my seat. And you, could, um, you can develop the sequence that you like or that works best for your horse, but that, those are the aids, and those are the sequence, and those are the purpose of the aids. So we're going to go haunches in. I'm going to shift my weight to my outside seat bone and give a little kiss as I push with my seat. All right. Ooh. Now, let's see Miss Abby, Mr. What's his name? I forget already, huh? Buddy, how could I forget that, Buddy? Okay, so what, what you, I want you to do, good, 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 is exaggerate haunches in. So I want that a girl, girl, girl. Now when, when okay, release him, go straight. Let's just do it again. We don't want them to do much by the gate because they're not at their best right there. So good, a little more. Every time you out there, now release him. Good, good, very good, Abby. Do it again. All the way in there, good. Okay, uh, problem solved. All right, so you felt that right, lead, right, correct? All right, so now you know exactly what it feels like. He has already associated that big ask of haunches in with the counter departure, so let's, let's see it. Right, Lee? Good girl. Good girl. So see how easy that was? Now, I don't think her horse had a big problem anyway. That wasn't any miraculous cure. She just had to set the horse up right. And most lead problems really are just that. The horse, he always has a favorite lead, just like you do, you know. Uh, Very few horses are going to be as good on the one lead as they are on the other lead. Almost all horses are better on one lead than the other. Generally that's gonna be their favorite lead. So if we have never, if we have asked the horse to canter a hundred times and never once differentiated the lead we were asking for, then what happens is he just always takes his favorite lead. And so then what happens is um, over time he thinks the cue for canter means the cue for canter on your favorite lead. So there are all kinds of horses that have lead problems that actually um, a, a rider trained into them. And so for instance, I'll, I'll just go through some categories where this is real common. As I mentioned, team roping horses, um, they always come out of the box on the left lead because that's the way the cow's going to turn. The whole thing works that way. Um, so after about a thousand times of coming out of the box on the left lead, do you think you would just automatically take the left lead? Of course you would. So unless we really go back and train those horses thoroughly and do a lot of right hand circling, right hand cantering, um, balance out their training, you end up with a one-leaded horse. Uh, ranch horses, and I mean the real deal ranch horses that they, they, the uh, cowboys are going to work on the second or third day they've been saddled and they're just going out on the ranch, you know, and putting some miles on those horses, same thing will often happen. When you ask them to canter, if you're going, you know, like a mile that way, what do you care what lead they're on? Let's just go! And so we don't, we ask them to canter, but we don't differentiate the lead. So again, the horse learns to canter on his favorite lead. Race horses, off-the-track horses, um, they, most thermal breds think they're smarter than you anyway, and they they prefer to say which lead they'll be on and when. But we like racehorses to do that because um, we want them to learn to change leads on the track when they need to change leads. So we want them to change leads right before they come into the turn and then right as they come out of the turn we want them to switch to the other lead because the legs don't work equally at the canter. So a horse needs to change leads um, to rest a leg And um, so anyway, so those off-the-track horses sometimes think they they ought to be the one that says what lead they're on, not you. So uh, those are all really just cueing problems. Uh, Every now and then you run into a physical problem where a horse has had an injury or something. um, And and that might mean he needs uh, some rehabilitation. I have... Some way more exercises for getting horses on the correct lead that are difficult to get on the correct lead. Uh, She doesn't need them. We started with the simplest thing. Nine times out of ten, the simplest thing works. Uh, My video on cantering, it's volume four in my uh, riding series. It's my best-selling video. It's called Canter with Confidence. It's an A to Z video. Uh, Everything I've done here, plus a lot more, including cantering a green horse for the first time, including... um, lead problems and all those exercises I was talking about to work out lead problems. Um, I In just a, 10 minutes, I got eight minutes, something like that. Um, we're going to work up the lead changes here in a minute. Um, and I just want to make sure we've got the queuing sort of uh, covered. Oh, yes, I knew there was one thing I left out, and I just remembered it. There's something really important, and we, in, in my, everybody on my team knows this. We work really hard. Uh, we're in a business that we're passionate about, and, and um, we're in a recreational business, and we want people to have fun, um, but we want to help the horses in that process as much as possible. So in my business, we refer to that as helping horses one human at a time. And um, so there's something that I see a lot that I want to warn you all about, and this is in the the spirit of helping horses. Um, When the horse canters, I'm going to just ask uh, Dooley here, totally unrestricted. In other words, I'm not going to collect him up. I'm going to ask him to go into the canter, and I want you to watch his head, and I want you to see that as he prepares to launch off in the canter, he will first lift his head, and then the next thing that will happen is He will drop his head. Uh, So watch this. Boom, 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 boom. Every stride of canter, the horse's nose goes down. And at no time does it go down farther than on the very first stride when he's getting his momentum going. So watch this again. Up down 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 so what happens is this Uh, people punish horses on a daily basis for doing what they ask them to do when you cue the horse to canter and you do not give him a release at that first stride when his nose drops down and he hits the bit because you're still doing this um, you have just punished him for doing something you asked him to do. This will lead to head shaking, uh, bucking, and worse. Some horses tolerate it every day of their lives, and they just tolerate it. Other horses uh, won't have anything to do with it. They're like, so if when you have horses that are acting poorly at the canter, Um, Often, horses can develop a fear of the canter departure. They're fine cantering, but at the moment you cue them, the head comes up and they get all, and then once they're three or four strides into it, they relax. That's a horse that's been hit in the mouth on the canter departure. He's afraid of it. So, the reason why this happens often is because of a lack of confidence in the rider. Sometimes it's just simple lack of awareness, and that's why I bring it up now. So we really want to teach riders at that moment of canter, you have to reach towards their mouth and give them a release. I, I reach all the way up to their ears. I, I promise my horses I'm never going to touch them in the mouth when they canter. Um, so that forward reach is important. But what happens also is, 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 that makes it worse is if uh, the rider lacks confidence, at the moment they feel that horse coming up into the canter, at the moment the horse's head is going down, they go, and then the horse hits the bit like that. That hurts him. It hurts his mouth. And so it's really important that, well, you know, a lot of you out there already know this, and you're doing a fine job, but protect the horses around you. And when you're teaching people to canter or you, uh, your grandkids or whatever, whoever it is, your friends, say, hey, uh, hey, your horse is going to do a lot better if you just reach for his mouth at the moment he canters. So d- usually it's just a matter of bringing it to awareness, and, and that's why I like to do this demonstration where people really see that head going down into the bit. Alright, let's go back out on our nice big circle tracking left here. And um, I managed to, to leave a few minutes left to talk a little bit about lead changes. Um, there are a lot of prerequisites for fine lead changes. And one is that you can canter from the walk. And I would go ahead and probably say from the halt, dead leaded, meaning 100% of the time you get the correct lead. So Celia, um, let me see a couple of walk, sorry, walk to canter to walk to canter transitions and you can go ahead to abby if you want to just circle back a little bit to give so you guys spread out <laughs> okay now here's the thing i like to say if your horse feels like he was shot out of a cannon when you cue him to counter you perhaps over cued him now i'm just teasing but she knows she did not that was the horse's way of saying, all right, old lady, I'll do it. I said I would do it every time. You don't have to yell at me. But what Celia was doing was really focusing on that transition. would My horse already bucked twice from doing that, um, Celia, so I'm not picking on you. But um, that's all that is, and we need to listen to our horses when they tell us that kind of stuff. So uh, let's have a, a smooth transition from the walk into the canter. Oh my goodness, she's only nine months under saddle. No, so you're just really starting to work at walk to canter. Oh, that was her first one. Okay, well, I would say it was pretty good then. I would say it was very good. And now this is an interesting subject. I was going to get my number two horse out, because he had the hardest time with the walk to canter transition. Um, and. I'm going to say he was probably six, nine months into his training. When one day arrived and I said, you know what? From this day forward, you're never trotting into the counter again. Never, ever, ever. And then he, and then he picked it up. He's, he's not a good thinker. So I had to sort of say this was the only way we were going to do it. So let's try that again. Just everything you did was perfect. Just maybe a little less of it. Also, um, don't over-prepare him. I know it's hard when I'm talking. Just when he's ready... Step right into the canter. Nice. Oops, he got his hind end lead mixed up a little bit. Did you see that? And he knew, he knew right away he had his hind feet mixed up, and so he tried to fix him in midair. Not his fault. No, so I would even, at that point, I wouldn't be afraid to just pat him on the neck and say, Oh, well, you know, we kind of messed up there, but don't worry. It's not a big deal. Let's get it right this time. So this time, uh, you know, just... I don't want you to make the cue longer because it seems like when he's ready, he's ready. and I want, Don't wait for me, just when he's ready, cue him. But just a little more haunches in. So I want that horse to be, and that's all right, you just play with that a little bit and I didn't realize that was your very first time. So I want, before I'm really serious about flying lead changes, my horse can do walk to canter, halt to canter, both leads anytime I ask him. And except for when I screw up. And that's always a possibility. And um, so also I want <laughs> okay. Uh, I want to um, be able to work my horse haunches in, um, walk and trot. And I want to be able to uh, leg yield or uh, two-track, walk or trot. And um, so this would be a little leg yield right, a little leg yield left. Um, These skills are prerequisite of the flying lead change, and they are all going to be used in the training of the flying lead change. Um, after, as I'm working on all of that, um, long before I ask the horse for a flying lead change, um, we're gonna do simple changes of leads. So let's have all three of you go, or all three of us, go up to a left lead canter and all the way around here. And we're gonna come through the middle. You're gonna come behind me and right in the middle of our figure eight, I want you to go down to trot. And then immediately pick up the right, reposition your horse and pick up the right lead canter. Now, I don't like to practice lead changes one after the other. I never do that. But we're doing it now because it's a presentation. So right in the middle, my horse is straight. I break him down to a walk or trot. I reposition him and re-cue him to canter. Take whatever time you need. My horse is obviously more finished, so he doesn't really need much time. But in that middle, in that transition zone, which might be 5 feet or 25 feet, you want to make sure the horse maintains straightness, that so we never turn our horses into a lead change we reposition their haunches and then re-cue them to canter. So break down, reposition the haunches, re-cue to canter. Repeat. And then you repeat that about a thousand times until your horse is going almost immediately, until there's almost zero steps of walk or trot. By then, your horse is ready for the flying lead change, and a lot of times people are doing flying lead changes long before they even know they are, because there. Once you get the simple lead change down to um, one step of walk or trot, the horse knows it's a lead change now, and so at the at the point every every now and then you'll run across a horse that. Um, gets stuck in the simple lead change because he's made up his mind that a lead change means breakdown. When you when your lead change when your simple lead change has gotten almost flawless where there's nothing in between, um, if the horse gets stuck in the simple lead change, what you want to do is start galloping through it. So I'd, I'd kick him up a notch in his counter, flatten him out, let him go straight a little more forward. And, and I'd take that woe out of it in the middle and, and, and just go ahead and ask for the lead change. So, but we never want to turn our horses into a lead change if the horse, um, ideally the horse should maintain straightness as he changes leads. Good boy. So if we... Uh, If we teach our horses a cue for a lead change by changing directions um, to undo the bad stuff from that to make a good lead change is going to be really, really hard. So we want that horse to change leads off his haunches, off his hind end, not off steerage, if that makes sense. All right? I'm sure I'm out of time. Somebody's probably going to cut my mic any minute. Oops, I am out of time. Thank you very much. I'm going to be back in here at noon. Um, for the presentation everybody's been waiting for. Mature audiences only. We're not talking about riding until you're 90. So come on back for that. Go over and join the Horse Council if you're not a member already. Thank you guys for being here this weekend. Uh, My booth is over in the far uh, trade show building. Uh, Come by and check us out and say hello. I'll see you back here at noon o'clock. Thank you very much. Let's give these riders a round of applause. Thank you to Smooth Stride Riding Jeans for sponsoring this podcast. They make it possible for you to listen for free. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride.